Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. We're back with another edition of Political Rewind, coming, in fact, to the end of another week, uh, another consequential week in politics. Obviously, uh, everybody has been paying at least some attention to the impeachment trial underway in the United States Senate. Uh, We're going to talk about a a little bit of that later in the show, particularly as it relates to the state of Georgia. But uh, because it's been dominating the cable channels and network news, we, we'll, we don't want to start with that. We want to start with what's going on here in the state of Georgia, especially because the legislative session is underway. So we'll put off talking about the impeachment trial for a little while and turn our attention to the state first. And to uh, be part of that conversation, uh, we have with us today Patricia Murphy, political reporter and the newly minted political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Patricia, I think we said it last week that we're delighted that you are going to be joining us on Fridays to be a partner of mine on the show. Uh, Thanks for being here today. How's it going? It's going great. I, um, today, though, I do have two homeschooling second graders and a dog who barks at rain. So if we make it through this, <laughs> it will be a miracle. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the other, day, the other day, Mary Margaret Oliver's dog played a very big role in Political Rewind. And uh, it was quite fine having her, her dog on the show. So we won't worry too much about it with you. Um, We're also joined today uh, by Mariella Romero, who is the Community Empowerment Director for Univision in the uh, Southeast region and is the host of her own uh, public affairs show on Univision. How are you, Mariella? Good morning, Bill, and good morning, everybody. I'm fine. Thank you. Mariella, I want to ask you a very quick question to follow up uh, on something that we talked about several times this week. Uh, the coronavirus has played a big part in our conversations, and and as we've talked about it, one of the things we've really focused on this week uh, quite closely is uh, equitable distribution of vaccines. That has been a terrible issue in the black and Hispanic communities. Can can you give us any indication of whether things are turning around at all? How difficult it is it for Hispanics to get shots in our, in our state? It has been difficult, um, Bill, and um, also there is uh, a lot of education that we have to do on our part as, as media because uh, if people do not want to voluntarily go and get vaccinated. So that is another front. It's not just how difficult it is to get the vaccines because people you know, who are not sophisticated enough to do appointments online or by their phone or have access to to the doctors or the system that provides them. It's also the misinformation going on around, um, and that's why I have been focused on my show talking about uh, the importance of getting the vaccines and also educating people about the you know, misinformation that they're not going to put a chip on you or the vaccine is not made of fetal uh, material, et cetera. So those are the topics we are covering on our side. We, we, were, uh, we reported the other day on the fact that Governor Kemp has now said he understands inequitable, inequitable distribution of the vaccine and insists that as more vaccine comes into the state, the state is absolutely dedicated to making sure they find a way to get it to the communities that haven't had it. But it, but it continues to be a problem that we're going to watch on the show. And I just wanted to ask you about that as we start. We're also joined today by Edward Lindsay. Edward, a former state representative from the city of Atlanta, now partner and the uh, the man who oversees, runs the public affairs practice uh, in Georgia for Denton's 
the world's largest law firm. <laughs> Edward, it's not the public affair. It's a, what, a government affairs. How do you what's the formal name of the operation that you run? Public policy. And, public and policy. I might also right. add that uh, that I'll see uh, Patricia's dog and I'll raise you Dakota. My, my, if, if the barking starts, <laughs> we'll we'll just have a grand old time. All right. I saved for last the return of former Democratic Congressman Buddy Darden, who has not been with us for far too long. And I don't think there's any question, Buddy, that our listeners have missed hearing from you. So I am very I I will tell you, Buddy, when we had our our daily meeting yesterday, I suggested to Sam Burma-Stawes and Amelia Brock that we ought to have theme for welcoming you back. And the theme ought to be John Sebastian singing the song Welcome Back, which was a theme song to Welcome Back Cotter. And, buddy, they had no idea what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> yes, Bill, you have to be our age to realize that. But yeah. I want to say greetings from Cobb County. Greetings from Cobb County, which, since I was on here last, has turned from red to blue. Yeah. Uh, yes, you uh, quite a, quite an earthquake uh, up there in Cobb. Well, buddy, you know how glad we are you're back with us. And uh, we should not make it such a long time between your visits to our show. Uh, well, Patricia, I do want to start. To be here. Um, Patricia, I do want to start with some news out of the legislature, if I may. And as long as I, I mentioned COVID a minute ago in terms of vaccinations, Talk to me a little, if you can, and we'll open it up for conversation. Uh, Representative Ed Setzler has a bill that would essentially punish nursing homes and hospitals if they continue to uh, refuse to allow um, visitors. I think he wants he says two visitors for a couple of hours uh, to uh, see loved ones in nursing home facilities and in hospitals, and. It sounds like a humanitarian effort. I know he had a, at a hearing the other day with very emotional testimony from people who've been cut off from their families. Uh, but I can't help but wonder if this is another example of ignoring the science in the, what, what is still a raging pandemic. Patricia, how is this all playing? Well, I, you know, I think to your point, um, it is a very emotional moment. Uh, uh, issue. And there are also a number of lawmakers who are personally impacted by what's going on with COVID. Um, there are two representatives on the House side, Patty Bentley. Her husband is in the hospital. She's not been able to see him um, since December. And um, Bonnie Rich's sister has been in and out of the hospital. Um, and other lawmakers have spoken and shared their own experiences that a lot of Georgians have experienced, even if their loved ones are not in a COVID ward or are not being treated for COVID, they still cannot get in to see them in a lot of cases. And um, it's not just for socializing. Uh, for many people, it really is to advocate for their family members to the doctors, um, which happens so frequently or used to happen a lot in kind of the old days, you would be there with your husband or wife or um, elderly grandparent and be the person interacting with the doctor and keeping track of the treatments and asking the hard questions. Um, obviously, that is of great concern um, on the other side to hospitals, to nursing home associations, uh, saying that you bring in um, people from the outside, you bring in everything else from the outside. And especially with these um, new, more transmissible variants, they just don't even know what they're dealing with. And so um, I think the patient advocates are looking for some sort of a happy medium to not be sitting in the room all day, but isn't there some way if it's done outside, if it's done with two masks, if it's done in some capacity, is there some middle ground between seeing people and never seeing people? So I, I don't know where this is going to go, but it does have some support on the House side as well. Edward? Well, Bill, I'm actually living this uh, in a very personal way. Uh, my mother is 94 years old and is in a, uh, a nursing facility. And um, the, the problem here is that the science actually falls both ways. Uh, there is no question but that my mother has uh, her, both her mental and physical capabilities have deteriorated over the last year 
by virtue of the fact that she doesn't have that connection uh, that she so desperately needs. But with a small group of people, she was still recognized. And that would be, quite frankly, me, my two sisters, and our, and our respective children. And, um, you know, she's had two stays in the hospital in which we weren't able to come in and help. One of them involved surgery in which she woke up the next day and didn't, couldn't figure out why she was in pain because she didn't remember the surgery from the day before. And so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to the, the, the issues involved in this. And on the other side, Patricia's absolutely right. I also want my mother to be safe. And uh, I don't want her to, uh, to face uh, you know, the, the, the dangers of this pandemic. And so there's a lot of us out here who are living this every day and who are seeing uh, what's happening. Uh, you know, yes, we need to keep folks safe through the pandemic, and, and I do applaud the facilities for trying to do that, including my mother's facilities, which I think are doing a very good job trying to balance things. And yet, on the other side, I do see very clearly uh, the very negative impact uh, that the isolation from your loved ones, particularly when you are in that last stages of life, can be. Uh, you know, Mayor. Oh, I, I apologize for that. You know, I want to, Mary Ellen, then, buddy, I, I think one of the reasons that I think this is worthy of a conversation, aside from the facts on the ground about whether it's a good idea or not, is it, it's, it seems to me it points to the way in which a larger problem around politicians, some politicians uh, in the last year, refusing to take the virus terribly seriously, ignoring the science, and of course it was Donald Trump, who uh, was the biggest uh, problem in that respect, has made us what might be a, a bill that makes some sense instead, from my point of view, raises questions about, oh, do we, here we go again, another politician who refuses to understand the science. Uh, nursing homes were the biggest hot spots in the state and the country uh, for months during the pandemic. And, and I think it's just another example here that we, Look at these things a little differently, uh, given the political environment that surrounded the virus for the entire last uh, year plus of the Trump administration. Mary Ellen, buddy, I'd love to get you involved in this. Uh, Bill, you're so right. When you first read the headlines, you think, oh, here we go again. This is disrespecting the science, etc. But I have to agree with Edward that the science goes in the favor of both uh, positions, because there, this is having an impact, a tremendous impact on the people in nursing homes. They are deteriorating at rapid, uh, in, in a rapid way because they are, they are not with their loved ones. So in some ways, this is a, a humanitarian effort as well, because there's a lot of suffering from the patients and their families. But also, you know, I have the coronavirus, and I know how terrible the effect on the body is. And I am only 50 years old. So imagine someone in their 90s getting it and then putting at risk also the caretakers who are in those facilities. So this is truly something that needs to be debated, but debated with the, uh, the scientists and the caretakers it has to be a, a, a very, very deep discussion, um, and, and it has human implications because this is a, a human side, our emotional ties with our loved ones, that is so strong, and, and it, it's worth uh, having a, a big, big and robust discussion. Buddy, um, uh, is the, uh, what Setzler would do is he would deny relicensing to a facility that didn't open its doors within certain guidelines to in, invite visitors to come in. Your thoughts? Well, Bill, while I've got great sympathy and compassion for the problems that so many members of the family are encountering, at the same time, the solution to a problem is not always a state law. And when you get into passing a state law, which has application throughout the entire health care system in the state of Georgia, then you get problems that you never anticipate. And so often, not every situation has a legislative uh, solution. And what I would propose here and what I think ought to be at least considered 
And while the problem should be brought to the public's attention, why not direct the Department of Public Health, in whom we all have quite a bit of confidence, led by Dr. Kathleen Toomey, why not uh, direct them to make a study of the situation and come back with regulations? So if a problem develops, it can be rather easily changed. But once something is written into state law, carved into stone, then, of course, you never know what the results, the adverse results might be. So I think maybe an administrative solution by the state might be better than a legislative solution. All right. Well, and, we'll and watch Buddy how that is unfold. quite right. I mean, uh, Bill, in that, um, you know, I still remember my mentor telling me, Edward, be careful of the bill you pass because today's most of today's problems are the result of yesterday's solutions. Uh, but I am heartened that we're having a discussion. I would prefer the word discussion rather than debate because I think folks on both sides uh, have a lot of merit and 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 we need to try to come up with a solution that recognizes the, the problems on both sides, not just the emotional, but the scientific issues on both okay. sides. Uh, Patricia, uh, one, one of the, perhaps the biggest issue, and you'll correct me if you think I'm wrong, uh, that's taking place down at the legislature this session is over health care. I'm, I'm sorry, over election, uh, uh, what, what some would call reform, changes to absentee voting. You wrote a column on this the other day in which you basically said uh, you went and asked a lot of people a lot of questions about why we needed to change the absentee, the mail-in voting laws in any way, and nobody really had much of an answer for you. Well, some people did not have an answer. And so, you know, the question is, what problem are you trying to solve with all of these bills? There are now 24 bills and counting about different changes to how Georgians uh, might vote in the future. Um, Some Republicans said, well, there's not, I wouldn't say there's a problem. I'm just saying maybe this is an opportunity. Um, Others say there certainly is a problem. Um, But then those problems tend to track very, very closely with President Trump's um, uh, lies, for lack of a better word, about the election and what was wrong with the election. uh, and uh, the many, many lawsuits that the Trump team filed related to what President Trump said never never resulted in anything. But it, it, the one thing it did result in is that at least two-thirds of Republican voters do not have faith in the election system. And that is a problem. That's a huge problem, um, and uh, especially for Republicans. Uh, but so there are just this incredible diversity of reasons that uh, Republicans want to start to change, in some cases, very drastically how Georgians can vote, especially by absentee. Um, But I think the biggest reason is because Republican voters have lost faith in the system and they've lost faith in the system because of Donald Trump. Yeah, I think Buddy, um, Buddy, uh, let me get to Buddy on this one first. Uh, Buddy, There's some there. This is uh, there's self-fulfilling prophecy going on here. Republicans, Donald Trump and those who have been his enablers have promoted the notion that the 2020 election uh, was a fraud. Trump started saying it would be a fraud last spring before people voted that if he didn't win, it meant it was a fraudulent election. And uh, and so they've convinced uh, of a wide range of, I think, a, a, a very substantial majority of Republicans not to have confidence in elections, and they don't. And so now they propose solutions to the problem that they have planted in people's heads. Do you think I'm saying that correctly, buddy? Uh, somewhat, Bill, but the real problem is that they had no confidence in the election, they say, because they lost. Now, I was on the ballot 21 times during the course of my political career. And three of those times, I had doubts about the outcome of the election. Those were the three times that I lost. And so uh, this is all goes back to uh, trying to fix a problem that we really don't, we really don't have. The current system, the current uh, no-excuse voting, the op- rules under which we operate now uh, have essentially been passed by the Georgia General Assembly by Republican majorities, including no-excuse voting, 
and uh, voting boxes. So let me just close out by saying that whenever you start tampering and changing the election laws, it always backfires. And uh, our Democrats did it several times. And it, uh, when they eliminated straight ticket voting, when uh, they made several changes, including uh, runoff elections in the general election, and it always comes to bite back and halt the party that made the changes. So I think we ought to proceed with great caution because voting is a right, not a privilege, and it's something we ought to encourage more people to do, not less, and we ought to make it easier for people to vote uh, rather than more difficult. Well, I voted for uh, the uh, absentee ballot uh no excuse uh, system, and I also voted for early voting, and I think that I'm proud of both of those votes, and I think they were the right thing to do then, and I think the right thing to do now. The, the, one of the difficulties here is dividing out uh, the uh, false claims regarding uh, the election that's been uttered by President Trump with some very serious concerns about how we manage absentee ballots given the large number of people who are now choosing that path. In 2018, for instance, only 6% of the folks were voting by absentee. This year, rather, in 2020, 30% did. That's creating a managerial issue for 159 counties. Uh, we need to, in my opinion, maintain the present system in terms of the ability of people to vote by absentee for any reason. But we probably do need to take a hard look at how we are administering that in terms of uh, perhaps moving to more centralized locations to handle all absentee ballots so that the system is more systematic, is more uniform. You know, that was a concern that some Democrats raised in 18 regarding absentee ballots and that, and that the 159 counties were handling it differently. So we, we, so we need to sort of look at the administrative side. Uh, and I know the Secretary of State and other folks are doing that in terms of trying to figure out how we're going to administratively handle the rise in absentee ballots, because now that 30% of the population have seen how easy and how it is to vote by absentee, they're going to keep wanting to vote by absentee. And probably a larger number of people are going to want to vote by absentee. That's what the trend has been around the country. The question is, how are we going to administratively handle that? Uh, and we're going to have to look at a brand new paradigm in terms of how we deal with the ballots when they come in and how they're taken care of. Uh, so that's what I would like to see the General Assembly focus on more rather than trying to restrict people's uh, – the options that people have right now in Georgia to vote. Mariella, and jump I in. Agree. Yeah, I agree with, with Edward. But the, the problem is that the solutions that uh, the GOP um, are proposing are not solutions to uh, managing the amount of votes in the absentee ballots. It's about um, – access uh, for the voters to to the ballot. And I, I agree with Buddy as well that, uh, you know, this is an opportunity also if they are going to start restricting and, um, and not allowing communities of color specifically to access uh, the, the ballot box. Well, if that is the opportunity for organizers, like we saw in this past election cycle, too, um, get people to educate and motivate them more. And, and we cannot, uh, you know, understate the, the, that during the next election, probably we're going to be seeing Stacey Abrams on the ballot, as well as uh, Raphael Warnock, of course, because he, he has to uh, be reelected in two years. So this is going to motivate a lot of uh, the same communities that were engaged in the past election. So one of the bills that I is, seems to be gaining the most traction among Republicans is the idea of a photo ID for absentee voting. Um, Raffensperger, Secretary of State Raffensperger said before the election, um, he wants to deal with that because Georgians need to show a photo ID um, when they vote in person, he has argued that it should be a consistent standard for both types of voting. Why should there be one standard over another? Um, although when the legislature voted to require a photo ID, um, and I think Ed could speak to this, 
there was then an effort to expand access to absentee voting for those people who didn't have a photo ID. Um, and I think that there were there have been so many agreements and balances struck in the past. Um, to uh, Buddy's point, to to get to this point in voting, when you pull one piece of it out, it affects all of the other pieces. Um, and I do think as Republicans, they're, they're going to get the votes for something. Um, but what is missing right now, I think, for Democrats is an acknowledgement of why Democrats are worried about voter suppression um, and uh, have experienced voter suppression and why this state's culture was once voter suppression. Um, there's that that sensitivity to Democrats' concerns, um, you don't hear a lot of acknowledgement of that by Republicans, and that probably could, could go a long way. Um, well, obviously, these measures are going to move forward, uh, some of them. Some of them will die, fall by the wayside, I imagine, but we will keep track of them as we go forward. Uh, one last quick uh, uh, legislative issue that I think is worth spending a moment on be, uh, before we take our break. Uh, buddy. Uh, sport, it looks like sports betting is uh, on its way to uh, uh, passing uh, the legislature. Uh, it does not require a constitutional amendment because of a decision the Supreme Court of the United States made a couple of years ago on the whole issue of sports betting. We don't need to get into the weeds on what the court did that uh, uh, allows sports betting to be passed simply by legislative fiat. But uh, is it good? Are, are we? Should we be concerned that we're opening the door to broader betting than just sports wagering, which is what, of course, some people are saying they want? Well, I personally have pretty grave concerns about it. I've never been much of a sports better and really have no interest in the issue personally at, at all. Uh, I think the argument that we make, of course, is that the lottery has been a big success financially and so sports betting would be as well i never thought i'd live to see the day that uh, sports betting would ever pass in georgia but it looks like it's going to become a become a reality and so since it is i just hope that we've got sufficient sufficient regulations and rules uh concerning its um implementation just like we do with the lottery our lottery has been yeah, I think, a great example it ought to be the same with sports betting Edward, yeah, we should point out that the uh, bill would, in fact, give the, the Georgia Lottery control over sports betting, which would mean that some of the funds from it would be earmarked for the Hope Scholarship, which is an incentive for a lot of legislators to look on it favorably, Edward. Yeah, the best line I've heard in terms of uh, why it should be uh, passed here in Georgia uh, from several of the proponents is that uh, don't put blinders on. We already have sports betting in Georgia. The question is uh, whether we, like other states, uh, are going to be able to receive some state revenue and some state benefit for the betting that's already taking place. And that's a pretty compelling argument. Is, is, is this an issue, though, that continues to uh, uh, divide Georgians, especially the religious community? Mariella, I, re I mean, I was here and, re and covered it and remember quite clearly just how controversial uh, Zell Miller's effort to pass a lottery, which with special earmarking for education, uh, same thing we're talking about now, uh, and it, the evangelical community rose up against him uh, when he ran for re-election. Um, it, it, they came close to, in that case, it did need uh, to be approved by voters, and it was not a big victory for the pro-lottery side. Uh, I think the religious community continues to have concerns about gambling in the state. Probably they have, but I think it's going to be inevitable. And since uh, there's going to be a lot of revenue coming to the state as well, uh, and the Georgia lottery has proven to to be a good conduit for the fund and, and provide uh, you know those educational opportunities. I think it's, it's, it's going to pass and it's going to be something that um, the religious right is going to get used to, like they got used to, um, you know, allowing people to buy alcohol on Sundays. I think uh, we were talking about new generations also of um, religious leadership as well and, and people seeing things differently. So I, I think it is really inevitable.
All right, Patricia, real quick, because I got to issue a break. Is this going to pass? Are we going to end up with sports gambling by the end oh, of this I session? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Don't, don't ask me <laughs> no, that. No, no. I think it's got the best chance of all of the three ideas between casinos and um, <laughs> horse racing and sports betting. Sports betting is truly out of sight, out of mind, and all of the Atlanta professional teams want it. So I think it's got the best chance. That was a good answer. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I thought that answer was exactly right for right now. Thank you, Patricia Murphy. Thank Let's you. get to our first break and come back with a lot more. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Univision's Mariella Romero, former Georgia congressman from up there in Cobb County, Buddy Darden, former state representative Edward Lindsay, and AJC political reporter and columnist Patricia Murphy with us uh, today. Patricia, um, we're going to continue to watch the impeachment trial unfold. Today, of course, the defense has their chance to uh, answer the charges by the House impeachment managers for the, that were made over the last few days. And we're expecting they're going to move through their portion of this very quickly, a, and we could very well have a vote to acquit or convict the president on these charges by, by the weekend. Uh, in, in the meantime, though, and we'll talk about that specifically in a minute, but Patricia, in the meantime, Fonnie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, has already uh, taken the n- next step beyond impeachment, by saying that her office is going to launch a criminal investigation into Donald Trump's attempts to overturn Georgia's election results. And and it's a pretty broad and widespread uh, uh, case. She has said it could include, could include potential violations of state law in regard to the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local government bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, violation of oath of office, and any involvement in violence or threats related to the elections administration. That's a direct quote from the letter that she sent out to Brad Raffensperger, Brian Kemp, Chris Carr, Jeff Duncan, telling them, I'm launching this investigation. I need you to hold on to any documents you have relating to any of this for further investigation. Patricia, uh, this is a... We, we have no idea where this will go, but this is a, this is serious business. Well, it's serious business because this is a criminal investigation, um, because uh, much of what is already known publicly, including the call between Donald Trump and Secretary of State Rappensberger, when the president asked Rappensberger to find um, 14,000 votes, and he had a very specific number that he asked for, and... Um, Bonnie Willis said in an interview last night on MSNBC, even that number is relevant. She said it's one more than the than the number of votes he needed. So it would demonstrate both his um, his soundness of mind, knew exactly what he was asking for and his state of mind. Um, And multiple people said after that call that it violated a number of state laws, including um, interference with an election. Um, I think also what's very important is that she has said uh, the actions that she's looking into don't are not limited to the call and are uh, in that way, uh, it's possible that it's not limited to Donald Trump either. Um, and so uh, we don't know exactly where this is going, but um, it certainly is uh, it, it quite serious and uh, could involve more people than just Donald Trump. And we know that there are multiple people in the state who um, uh we're in constant contact with the president, um, not Brad Raffensperger and not the state officials defending it, but there were a number of people in the state who um, were working uh, with President Trump uh, in his efforts to undercut the election. And um, 
this could have, I think, wide-ranging um, results. Uh, Buddy, uh, the DA says she's going to take this case to the next uh, uh, panel impanelment of a grand jury, which comes in March in Fulton County. And Patricia's right. This may not be limited to Trump. Uh, apparently, one of the reasons Jeff Duncan got a letter is because in December, Rudolph Giuliani came before the state Senate, a committee of the state Senate, and he advanced all sorts of false claims about the, the election uh, being stolen. What do you make of all this from your point of view, buddy? Well, Bill, as an old district attorney for Cobb County, naturally, I've been very interested in it. And we've got to remember here that these are state, potential state criminal charges. And if Bonnie Willis, the district attorney, decides that she wants to move forward, she will have no trouble obtaining an indictment in Fulton County Superior Court from a grand jury. I don't think there's any doubt about that. You only need 16 to 23 grand jurors. And generally speaking, grand jurors uh, will follow the recommendation of the district attorney. It will take a tremendous amount of resources for her to accomplish this. But if she does, here you're looking at not only uh, Donald Trump as, as a uh, defendant, who incidentally cannot be pardoned by anyone and except for the state pardon paroles board. Uh, however, you also have Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff, who I understand was on the call. And if I recall correctly, he actually came down to Cobb County to uh, inspect some of the goings on uh, having to do with the with the votes uh, down here to be sure that they were they were being conducted properly. So I think there are more people involved than Donald Trump. But if, if the district attorney decides to move forward, I don't think she'll have any difficulty, one, in obtaining an indictment, and two, in Fulton County, I think her uh, chances of a conviction might be pretty good. Mariella? Well, I think also, uh, you know, this is going to uh, put the former president uh, in, 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 in a lot of trouble because he also is facing investigations in other states. So I believe that now that he's a private citizen uh, and he cannot be uh, pardoned, uh, it, 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 I, I think he's in real, real trouble, especially when we have, uh, you know, a constituency in Fulton County who probably is not going to look favorably on him as part of the, the jurors, the probable jurors in, in New York City as well. So I think uh, this is a trend that is going to uh, continue as we you know, uncover some of the the things that the former president did uh, to try to to change the outcome of the election, and and that is something illegal. Edward, yeah, let me sort of divide between uh, before January sixth and after January sixth in in my comments because I think that that that's an important dividing line. Uh, Buddy comes from the perspective of of an old. Uh, prosecutor. I come from the perspective of my beginning my career as a criminal defense lawyer, in which uh, I learned very quickly that not everything that's stupid, wrong, or even reprehensible is necessarily criminal. Uh, and that's what we got to look at in terms of what, what the president and folks who were advocating for him thought and did before January 6th versus what happened at the national capitol. Uh, on January 6th. That, those are two very different issues. Uh, I, I, I agree with Buddy that probably that the DA here in Fulton County could get an indictment. What's the old line, Buddy, that uh, that a, a DA can uh, can indict a, a bologna sandwich? If they, I believe it's a ham sandwich, to, but you're right. Ham sandwich, thank you. <laughs> if, if, if they seek to do so, the question is can they get a criminal in, in, indictment or can get a criminal conviction? Uh, the bigger question, and there will be other uh, folks looking at it as well, is what took place on January 6th and who was responsible for that. And that's probably something more on the federal level than here in Georgia. But we'll just have to wait and see. Um, so it is going to be fascinating to watch how it plays out here in Georgia. In, and what I'd like to do now is um, take a break, come back. I do want to talk about what's happening in the impeachment trial 
because it, a, lot of, a lot of it does relate back to the things that Fonnie Willis is investigating right here in Georgia. So let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with that. Edward Lindsay, Mariella Romero, Buddy Darden, and Patricia Murphy with us today. Patricia, real quick, do you happen to have a preview of what we're going to see from you in your Sunday column? Yes, I do. I am writing about um, Sanford Bishop, Congressman Sanford Bishop, Congressman David Scott, and Senator Raphael Warnock um, have all assumed uh, new positions, although for Sanford Bishop, it's a two-year-old position and very high leadership um, on the agriculture committees in Washington. Uh, chairman Scott is now the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. Sanford Bishop is the chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Agriculture. And Raphael Warnock has been appointed to um, the Ag Committee on the Senate side. Um, and that is, uh, they are three, they are, each one of them is the first African-American to hold those positions. And um, it's the first time in a long time Georgia farmers will be going to Democrats to talk about a lot of these things because they'll be in charge of it. And also um, the three gentlemen um, are uh, focused on black farmers and the sort of uniquely difficult history of black farmers and also um, what they can do to make the future for them um, more equitable. That is a fascinating, fascinating development to have three African-Americans with such power on agriculture, of all things. Yeah, so it'll it's be, a, yeah. I look forward, I look I forward to reading say, your column, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I keep talking. Um, I was just going to say it's Georgia's biggest industry. It's 44 states largest industry. So for Georgia farmers in particular to have three Georgians on such high positions of power, um, after Sonny Perdue left USDA, I think it's uh, it'll be very good for the state as well. Um, all right. Uh, listen, before we talk impeachment, I've been trying to get something on this show all week, but I man- my, my time management skills, as people who listen every day know, are really bad, and I always just run over. So let me do it right now. Uh, there was an important decision made this week at, by uh, uh, officials at the University of Alabama who finally decided that the name of George Wallace, the former governor of Alabama, one of the biggest symbols of racism, segregation in the United States for decades, should be removed from a building at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Uh, To add insult to injury for Wallace, it's now just called the Physical Education Building. And I just thought it'd be worth remembering just the, one of the most famous lines of any speech George Wallace gave was this moment from his inaugural speech when he became governor back in 1963. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Buddy Darden, uh, talk about a vestige of the seg past uh, finally erased. Well, Bill, they may have taken his name off the building, but they'll never take off the indelible imprint of George Wallace on the state of Alabama. A fair enough comment, but uh, it but it is good to see that there are people who are willing to think these things through. Ed Lindsay. Well, the question then that then uh, comes up for those of us in Georgia: What uh, do we uh, need to yeah. start looking at, or should start looking at, in terms of uh, of our own path? I mean, as I drive down to the state capitol, I drive by Grady Hospital. And there's a statue on Marietta with of Henry Grady, who was uh, hailed in the 1890s as a proponent of the New South, but that New South was was rooted on white supremacy. And the question is, what symbols that we have here in Georgia that we're going to need to take a second look at? Yeah, no, absolutely, and and that conversation does continue, and we have seen some statues taken down uh, in in communities like. Uh, Decatur, but the conversation does continue, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, Mariella, 
let's talk impeachment for a minute. I want to read you a line or two from Peggy Noonan. We all know Peggy Noonan, Republican. Uh, she was Ronald Reagan's number one speechwriter, uh, so really helped carve out the new conservatism that Reagan uh, promoted back then. And uh, she has, but she's been an anti-Trumper. And she had this to say in her column yesterday as she watched the impeachment unfold. Uh, first, she said, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump has been a route for the pro-impeachment side. They made the case through time-stamped videos and close argumentation. Their timeline linked in undeniable ways that statements of the president on January 6th and the actions of the rioters who stormed the Capitol were interlinked. Uh, but then she says this, Congress was riveted, journalists were riveted, was America, did it watch? We'll find out the ratings and in time get a sense of what people felt was worth absorbing. Did the proceedings have the power to break through as anything other than a partisan effort? I don't know. Noonan says, I suspect so. In the pandemic, people are glued to their screens. Nothing they saw, nothing would make them admire Mr. Trump more. Um, will this have an impact, Mariella, really, beyond people's partisans' lenses? You know, she, great, she makes a great observation. And because we are consuming politics and we are seeing those great, uh, you know, presentations by the managers and we are reliving all the horror that happened that day. Uh, for us, it has a, a, an in, immense impact. But when we are talking with the people who are trying to get their businesses back up, and even we are, when we do the research of how to do better newscasts, et cetera, people are tired of that political coverage. The, 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 you know, the people who are trying to return to normal, to take care of their families, et cetera, they're probably not willing to consume this anymore. So it's, it's a great point. It's a great question that she asked. Because for us, it's, it's obvious. But I think uh, not for the, the, the common citizen who is trying to survive this pandemic, who has been, you know, has devastating effects in, in the economic and financial lives of, of the citizens. I'd love to get each of the others of you to weigh in on that question. And we'll go Buddy and Edward and, and Patricia give you the last word on it. Buddy? Well, first of all, uh, Bill, I can tell you that the Georgia prisons are full of people uh, who have been convicted on less evidence than they have presented on Donald Trump. However, we all know that the votes are not there, and we all know that it's going to come to a conclusion uh, pretty soon over the weekend. And he will not be not be uh, convicted. So it, it's very evident here that the House managers were playing to the American public, not to just the Senate itself. And so the effect we will not know for uh, some time. But I will I will say this: uh, while he will not be convicted, the votes just aren't there. I think. It was a case that should have been brought. I think the American people should have all the facts. And I think the House managers have, have done a great job, notwithstanding the fact that he will never be convicted. Uh, let, let me add this, Ed, Edward Lindsay. Nikki Haley, of all people, uh, his U.N. ambassador, who was very loyal to him in the way she talked about him, said the other day that she thinks he's on a downward tra – he's trending downward and isn't going to be a factor moving forward. Add that to this question about whether the uh, trial itself is having an impact beyond the, the partisanship of, uh, that people are seeing – some people see it as. I think that, that, that um, Ambassador Haley has a point. Uh, and I think to sort of build on what Buddy said, this this trial, so to speak, uh, is is more about sort of setting out the historical record in terms of what happened. Particularly, quite frankly, not enough emphasis until now has been taken on what the president did after the Capitol was stormed in terms of his role as commander in chief. 
to preserve uh, and protect uh, our system of government. And, you know, as a result of, of what's been laid out, and, you know, this is, so far we've just heard the, the, the plaintiff side. Let's hear the defense side today. I'm sort of curious to hear what they're going to say. But it's sort of laying out the historical record for folks to ponder. Uh, there are folks who are still diehard, very much in this state in particular, diehard uh, Trump supporters. But I do suspect that over time that number will diminish. They'll still be there, but that number will diminish. And then we'll have to go from there. While folks worry about what Mariella was talking about a moment ago in terms of how they're going to put food on their table and, and keep their businesses going and keep their the health of their loved ones intact, which is the primary concern and which is what folks will focus on when it comes to our new president over the next two years before the 2022 election is how well he handles uh, both the economic and health crisis that we're presently in. And we'll then move on from there. That's my hope, quite frankly, is that we focus on this administration and what they do right and what they do wrong and then move from here and start making President Trump part of our history. Patricia? I'm sorry. Um, So the Wall Street Journal editorial board, to go along with your theme, um, wrote that he might be acquitted, but he won't live down his disgraceful conduct. Um, I think this will have more effect on the Republican Party and Republican voters and who they might choose in 2024 and the power that the president has over um, that field and over even Republicans running in 2022. It's just you can feel it diminishing his legacy and draining his power away from him. Um, Even if uh, the votes aren't there, there are 22 Republicans up in 2022. Uh, A lot of people listening to their state Republican parties right now. It does strike me that you've all said uh, a version of this. Um, if nothing else, they're, they're going to acquit him, uh, presumably. There are Republicans who do not want to convict him for a variety of reasons, um, whether they're correct or not. But this is histor- This is now history. They have put together such a comprehensive look at what happened, not just January 6th, but going back to the spring when Donald Trump began his campaign of declaring that any outcome other than his being the victor would would be the result of a fraudulent election and move forward with that. Uh, they have laid out in such great detail how the, uh, the president uh, began to raise the questions that would lead to this army marching on the Capitol in a way that will be remembered forever. And my uh, way of thinking of this is this will be how President Donald Trump will be remembered by history uh, because of the work done by these impeachment managers for the past uh, few days. But we'll see. Uh, and have more on this story on Monday after the vote. That's it for us. Uh, Mariella Romero, Buddy Darden, Ed Lindsay, Patricia Murphy, thank you for being with us. We're back again on Monday. Take care, stay safe, wear your masks. Bye-bye. <laughs>